There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I'm your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis, and they can affect you or a loved one at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing a senior colleague and a good friend of mine, Professor Soli Ratamani, now retired but formerly head of the Department of Psychiatry at Sefako Mahato Health Sciences University. Soli, welcome to today's podcast. Nice to have you. Thank you very much, Christopher. And I want to start out by making a statement and posing a question. So we live in Africa, South Africa specifically, and one might argue we are still a traditional society, uh, notwithstanding rapid urbanization here in South Africa. Psychiatry is very much a Western creation, yet it would see itself as as universal. Do you agree with that, or how do you feel about that? Let me start by saying that I think it is universal. However, in the day-to-day practice of psychiatry, one has to be mindful of the different or diverse cultures within Africa, within our country, South Africa, and, and have a feeling of how those impact on mental illness. I think it's important to note that um, we have to be aware of uh, what, so, what we call competences in cultural assessment. Mm-hmm. And, and that means knowing the extent to which certain cultural influences may interfere or influence the diagnosis that we make. But also in terms of intervention, we need to also understand how we can help different people because most probably some people may need sophisticated methods of intervention, Mm. but based on the culture, there are a number of interventions. For instance, some people may benefit from spirituality, religious interventions, or even uh, traditional healing systems. Uh, In addition, all separate from um, consultation with Western-trained doctors. I think this comprehensive understanding of uh, evaluation, assessment, and intervention is very important. Okay, and I just need to clarify that you and I are really discussing psychiatry in a cross-cultural setting, yes, which is very relevant to, to our situation here in South Africa. Um, as much as, as obviously one has to have a certain sensitivity, do you feel... Um, that our psychiatrists in a South African context are adequately trained to have this kind of awareness and uh, insight into cultural background, cultural beliefs of the patients who they treat? If I have to share my personal experience, yes. uh, I studied child and adolescent psychiatry in London, in the UK. And coming back home, I thought, well, you know, can I apply what I learned in London, in South Africa. I found that basically you have to be a good psychiatrist. You have to be a good child psychiatrist. Other things fall into place. You've got to be a good listener. It doesn't matter whether you speak English, Africans, or any other language, as long as you understand the needs of a patient and you also have an understanding of uh, ways of intervening. I, I, I didn't find cultural background 
understanding of cultural sensitivity to be too much of an impediment. Right. It becomes an impediment if you ignore it completely. Okay. So there has been a, a, a figure bandied around by the World Health Organization that a significant percentage of our patients as psychiatric patients will consult traditional healers. Yes. And I think that it's important for us to be cognizant of that and to be aware of the fact that this is a reality. Is that a problem? That is a problem if you make it a problem. Right. I think you know, even very sophisticated, highly educated uh, black people, for instance, yes. will quietly consult the traditional healers. But they will not stop also consulting Western trained, you know, therapists, you know, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and so on. That they do because of family pressure or family influences. So, so what that does not make them prefer one to the other. They simply want someone who takes care of them, who listens right. to them, who will be able to guide them in terms of how to solve their problems. So in a sense, what we're saying is that it's possible for there to be a complementary relationship in the sense that we accept that we would see our patients, but they may consult elsewhere in addition to. So are we then saying that potentially we might work together or we just accept that there are almost silos, but the patient will consult in either? If you take the Kenya experience, right? Kenya has... Um trained uh, traditional healers to understand basic signs and symptoms in psychiatry with the hope that uh, they will know when to refer their patients to the Western-trained uh, experts. Right. Now, they, they think, and this is information coming from studies done by Professor David Detey, yes. that they found that the referral rate to their facilities was higher from traditional healers if they understood that uh, they're not going to be shunned, they're not going to be undermined, and they'll also be respected. Personally, I am comfortable working in the space that I know very well, but I will not deny a patient from consulting anyone else, for instance, the traditional healer. Uh, I would have difficulty personally re referring a patient to a traditional healer because I don't know their skills, their trade, and they don't want to share that open with us. However, if patients are comfortable with that, I don't see any limitation to that process. And when people come to us, I think we have to also be mindful of the need to explain what we're doing carefully so that people have a choice to stay with us, follow our interventions, either psychotherapy or medication, without feeling that uh, they are being blocked from any other consultation outside our processes. So would you, based on the Kenyan experience, which I think is very interesting actually, mm -hmm. where there seems to be respect and also a collaborative relationship where there is a kind of a common understanding, this is what you do, this is what I do, this is what I can offer, and let's accept that there are many more traditional healers than mm. there are psychiatrists in this country. Yes. Many, many more. So the chances of our patients having seen a traditional healer before they come to see us, mm. coming from a certain section of the population, is probably quite high. It is high. Actually. And I think in many respects, the traditional healers are actually an important component of the healthcare system because they often represent maybe an entry into the system. And if we were 
better understood by them and specifically understood to be respectful of what they do, that might actually encourage closer working relationships. Not that I'm saying that they would now join our ward rounds necessarily, but there would be that openness. I agree with that. There would be openness. There is a closer relationship, working relationship. However, there are other factors that, that uh, this process promotes. One of the main factors it promotes is uh, the avoidance of patients being referred to us with wounds from right. being punished, from being tied to trees, for being chained and so on. Mm-hmm. If we have uh, common workshops with traditional healers where possible, without undermining their trade, it's possible for them to understand that there are other ways of containing patients rather than tying them to trees, chaining mm. them, or beating them up. Because mm. that was the common practice even here in South Africa. Right. But the more people become aware that there are medications that are helpful to containing a psychotic episode, they find that it's easier to refer to us. And they will ask that once we have made the patient relax and we put patient on medication, we should refer them back to them. Right. But I think that choice should lie with the patient. Yes, I think that is important. This whole issue of uh, autonomy and the Mm. ability to make rational decisions, I think we have to accept that. Is there a difference in the urban-rural manifestation of psychiatric illness in this country? Are there differences? The differences lie mainly in terms of uh, what people are exposed to in the rural areas. You know, the exposure is mainly to substances like cannabis. Right. But uh, illnesses such as schizophrenia, mood disorders, anxiety, and so on are the same, I believe. But then you come to the urban areas, then you have uh, a combination of other substances. And you also find stressors that are related to the need to find jobs, the need to survive, issues about accommodation, levels of income, and so on. So the stressors seem to be higher in the urban areas compared to the rural areas. So I think it's it's easy to expect that anxiety levels would be higher in the urban area compared to the rural areas. With regard to depression, for instance, mm. I find that dynamics are very interesting. Uh, people in the rural areas might actually get depressed to the same extent as people in the urban areas. However... They have other methods of containing the depression because uh, families tend to be more accepting, tend to be more supportive. Mm. Whereas in the urban areas, uh, you seem to be on your own. Unless there's someone near you or around you who's going to help you understand that you can benefit from consultation with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a mental health care worker. So it's this connection to community which is also very important as part of protection in terms of how you deal with things and the extent to which you can share, be understood, and receive uh, an input which may not be at a professional level, but simply at the level of interpersonal connection, which maybe to some extent in the urban environment is is getting lost? Urban environment tends to make people become very lonely, and they are shy to express their, their, their inner feelings, their thoughts uh, to those close to them because they are afraid to be judged. 
families are smaller, but you know the community is there. But sharing of information is difficult. In the rural areas, you live within a community. Yes. Your problem is a community problem. For instance, where you have chiefs, traditional healers, or other groupings of that nature, there is no problem in going to them to say, I have this problem, and they're able to assist you without being judgmental. And and this leads us to the whole issue of uh, stigmatization of mental illness. The communities tend to accept that Things can go wrong. But when you're in a situation as tight as the urban situation, uh, if things go wrong, you know, with you mentally, uh, you're faced with fear of losing your job. You're faced with the fear of disclosing that you have a problem because you might be told, we cannot work with you, so you might lose your job. You're faced with uh, financial difficulties in terms of accessing facilities where you can get help. Whereas the broader rural community embraces you and embrace your problems with your mental health. So is there a a stigma attached, would you say, in our local black communities related to consulting with psychiatrists versus in a rural area where things are taken care of within the context of a traditional healer? I think stigma is universal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not really rural or urban in nature. But it is worse in the urban situation because uh, there is, you know, uh, the need to survive in a much stronger way than in the rural areas where lots of things are shared. For instance, you know, common cooking places, rearing cattle or, you know, farming equipment and so on are shared. So there's a lot of uh, collective effort in the rural areas. But in the urban areas, you have few close friends that you can share information with. And and therefore, stigma tends to be higher in rural settings, compa- sorry, in the urban in the areas, urban areas yes. uh, compared to the rural areas. And, and this seems to be worldwide, except that in other countries, particularly first world countries, the facilities for uh, mental health care are broad. They, they're not just located in urban areas. You do find them also in rural settings. And I think that... Uh, in South Africa, we should actually be doing that, mobilizing people to understand basic mental health needs, basic uh, presentation of mental health problems, and how best to deal with those without feeling you are different from other people. That is where stigma is. Do you think that in the teaching of psychiatry, I want to come back to that, yes. because my understanding is that within the context of traditional healers, there are different types of traditional healers. Some who do certain things, others who do different things. Mm-hmm. Is there a is is there a need for psychiatrists in training to have an understanding of the different types of traditional healers that exist and to have an awareness of what each one might do and 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 where they might be of best service in a particular case? I think it's going to be difficult for psychiatrists to know the different types of traditional healing systems, but broadly speaking. They will know that there are healers who are spiritually orientated, who will basically pray for you, support you uh, from the religious perspective, and that those who may want to introduce herbal remedies that they've been using for, for ages and, and hope that this can help you. And this is a very important issue because uh, in many African countries, uh, there are people who use these herbal remedies to reduce the severity of a psychotic episode and also a stabilized mood. 
But the problem is we don't know the dosing. Mm. We don't know to what extent a patient can take this for how long they can take them. Whereas in the Western training approach, we know we can at least calculate that this treatment should continue for six months before we change or the dosing is this much. So there's openness in the mm. Western approach. Whereas in the traditional approach, uh, there is some secrecy and, and that is a problem. And it's not an exact science. It's not an exact science. And, and, um, I'm actually concerned that, um, for instance, in South Africa, there are so many young people who, number one, do not go to school, but suddenly they emerge as traditional healers. Mm. Uh, and you wonder whether they can actually help you in any way. Is this really a calling or is this something that, uh, is driven by underlying anxiety, depression, or some kind of mental illness? I, I'm really surprised. Well, I mean, it's often, Understood when a patient presents in our Western setting mm -hmm. with a psychosis that it's part of a calling. Yes. How do we distinguish that? Because it's often very puzzling to say, well, is this a calling or is this psychosis? What is this? This depends on that family's belief system. If they believe it's a calling, you cannot shift them easily. But uh, there are people who say, Yes, we do have a calling of this nature. However, this seems to be too much. Mm -hmm. It's beyond what we normally within our community accept as a calling. We may need help from outside. And that's when they consult Western trained doctors like ourselves, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers. But then they would want to then continue with uh, practices that are related to the calling in the traditional sense. So there has to be a, a an understanding of that and a, and a kind of a marriage of the two, accepting that your patient may come to you for something more specific, but then still return to a traditional belief system outside yes. of what we might offer. I think that is critical. For instance, in Uganda, you find that uh, when patients are admitted before discharge, there are patients who will say, I would like to see my traditional healer. Materiality must be part of the discharge plan. Mm. So the doctors then explain the diagnosis, they explain the medication, and encourage the traditional healer to do whatever he does. But if medication is going to be stopped, they have to inform the hospital or the treating psychiatrist. And that has helped many people. And also, they find that the traditional healers assist in following up patients at home right. to remind them of hospital appointments. Uh, this is... Uh, a system that was introduced by Professor Musisi right. in some of the hospitals in Uganda, particularly in Kampala. And I think uh, we might be moving in that direction in this country, uh, but maybe in a limited way. For instance, the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Mental Health in this country right. has a position there for a traditional healer okay. who then advises the team on what they do and uh, feels very important because he or she is consulted on uh, the nature of the practice. But the key problem that I find, even with that uh, participation, is that they always feel undermined. They right. always feel... The traditional healer feels traditional undermined. Traditional feel undermined. They feel that the outsiders, the more modern Western training is, is, more, is acceptable and is funded better by government. There is no funding really for... Traditional healers, healers. Yes. They, they have to really find, right. you know, uh, something uh, funding basically by charging their patients, but there is no clear cut funding from government.
The question I, I, I have is about myths about psychiatry in traditional societies. Because yes. I think that, you know, if you, if you look at the urban-rural divide in, in, in South Africa, I mean, Gauteng is highly urbanized, KwaZulu-Natal is highly rural. Yes. So I think we have to be very mindful and respectful that there is a, an urban-rural divide. And how do we dispel myths about psychiatry and mental illness in traditional communities? I think the key is for us to step up our advocacy for mental health by making sure people understand what mental health is and how do you self-diagnose or how do you know that you are having difficulties that are such that you need to consult someone. Right. And also you need to advise people on uh, what is available in society to help them, where the facilities are located. The advocacy must include making sure that government has facilities within reach of where people live. They shouldn't be traveling distances to go to mental health facilities. I think in the past we used to have uh, community nurses who would move around the communities to talk to people about different things. I have a feeling that that system should be reintroduced. Yeah. Uh, it is not a wasteful system. It's a very educational and a very informative system. Having said that, I find that despite the strong traditional belief systems, people have now accepted that they can be anxious mm. to the extent that they may need help. They can become depressed, uh, clinically so, severe depression that may need uh, assistance. People have become aware that uh, suicide is not just something that happens. Sometimes it's associated to the severe depression. And, and families do ask for help. Right. You know, they come to Western trained doctors for help. They know that there are facilities where people can be admitted and be, tra- be treated, you know, for certain periods of time to make them feel better and followed up on outpatient basis. I think where we have a problem is if they go out and stop treatment that was started in hospital to consult with traditional healers who put them on herbal remedies or traditional remedies, we may be losing out on something there. I think uh, that combination of our modern training and uh, traditional training is important. For instance, the Ugandan situation, where the traditional healers would, would be in touch with the Western-trained doctors mm. to make sure that the patients understand that they shouldn't miss appointments. If they're unhappy with the medication, they should say so, so that the medication dosage can be reduced or right. changed. You know, I think that is key. I was just thinking about the Ministerial Advisory Committee. Yes. And it kind of strikes me that there's almost a hierarchical experience of that for the traditional healer. Yes. Like they're kind of brought in, but they feel less than. Do you think they're intimidated by the sort of Western model or they are just experiencing the fact that they're kind of brought in as an add-on, but they're not necessarily taken seriously? I think they they see themselves as an add-on and uh, they're not sure that uh, their views are actually taken seriously, but uh, having chaired that committee for five years, yeah. I found that they were not very open about uh, what they do. Okay. So, you know, it's difficult to, to advise or share information openly with a person who does not tell you what he's doing. We were sharing information openly. We are assessing facilities. We are making recommendations to the minister. All what they needed was that they must be recognized. And they also wanted to be able, for instance, to write sick notes yes. and, uh, and and things like that. Now, that is complicated. A sick note from a Western-trained doctor would say five days a month because of this and that and that. 
But a sick note from a traditional healer may put you off for six months or 12 months without explanation. That is a problem. And I think that has been an issue because if we're talking about respecting the traditional healer, there has to be an understanding of how the system actually works Yes. in terms of the rules, regulations, procedures, etc. So there seems to be some significant difference in that sense, which causes conflict, actually. I, I think it does. For instance, in our setting, if you were to give a patient sick leave of uh, six months, uh, you'd have to justify that there must have been a proper evaluation and a follow-up to justify that the length of sick leave. Right. So I would not mind the traditional healer who says this patient needs to be at home for six months, but before that is formalized, could I consult also a Western-trained expert right. who will confirm the underlying diagnosis? Uh, there's, there's always a conflict there because supposing it's a calling, the right. Western-trained doctor may not be able to assess the calling. Absolutely. You know, uh, and uh, employers are not happy with that process because it's very vague. And so in a sense, that does create a hierarchical system. Yes. Whereby the traditional healer viewpoint is going to be subordinate to further consultation yes. where there may be conflict. Exactly. And I suppose until we are able to reconcile those kinds of issues, we may find ourselves exactly where we are talking about it rather than actually finding a consensus and moving forward Yes. in terms of how we integrate the traditional healer. And they don't necessarily want to be integrated. No, they want to be on their own. But I think we can use the media, you know, TV, radio, uh, to give them space right. to share their views with us. Yes. And equally, we should also be able to talk about what we do in a simple manner such that the ordinary person can understand us. I was thinking about the role of the community nurse, the psychiatric community nurse, which which was so important. They understood mm. their community. They were yes. in the community. And in a sense, the traditional healer is not a community psychiatric nurse, yes. but they're in the community. Yeah. They understand the community, and it would just seem to me to be so important to make use of that human resource that exists and to find a way to actually bring everybody together in the best interests of patient care. That would be very helpful, but more so in the rural areas where you have fewer specialists in mental health. For instance, you have few psychiatrists, few psychologists. Most psychiatrists are in the big cities or in the major cities in each province. Mm. But the rural areas uh, will have a psychiatrist, maybe one or two. But um, people have to travel distances to, to go to centers where they can find that kind of specialist. So I think a sense of uh, advocacy, making government aware that there must be a very comprehensive system that includes task shifting. Uh, most yes. of the work must be given to the community nurses. Right. And they should be given transport to reach out to the communities because that's a key issue. People struggle with transportation to go to these facilities. So if you reach them in their communities or establish clinics in their communities where they can walk or just use uh, cheaper transport to reach the facility, that would be better. A big question, suicide. I mean, obviously, that has been something that was kind of well-established in the white population. Yes. It started to emerge in our black population. Is it a phenomenon in the black population to the extent of the white population? Are there differences? And how is it 
understood and experienced? My understanding is that uh, there's always been suicide in the black community. Right. But it was hidden in the sense that people would feel that there's something wrong with the family if one of them commits suicide. But we are more and more opening up as a society. Uh, there are people, both rural and urban, who do admit that uh, a relative, a member of the family has committed suicide. And they would then want help for the rest of the family because the impact of suicide on the family is very serious. Profound. Yeah. Profound. Solly, I want to thank you for joining us. And what I would like to say is that no matter what your cultural background or where you're from, mental health issues affect us all. And just to reiterate, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has provided you with some new perspectives. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.